Section 36 of A Woman's Journey Round the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. A Woman's Journey Round the World by Ida Laura Pfeiffer. Chapter 20. Persia. Part 2. The 22nd of July. Today I presented my letter, and the Persian merchant received me with a welcome. He conducted me to a Christian family, and promised to make arrangements for the continuation of my journey as soon as possible. In this instance also the conversation was carried on more by the means of signs than words. There were twenty Christian families in this town, who are under the care of a French missionary, and have a very pretty church. I looked forward with pleasure to conversing again in a language with which I was familiar, but learned that the missionary was on a journey so that I was not better off than at Ravandus, as the people with whom I lived spoke only Persian. The man whose trade was that of a carpenter had a wife, six children, and an apprentice. They all lived in the same room, in which they gave me a place with great readiness. The whole family were uncommonly good and obliging towards me, were very open-hearted, and if I bought fruit, eggs, or anything of that kind, and offered them any, they accepted it with great modesty but it was not only towards myself that they were so kind but also towards others no beggar went away from their threshold unrelieved and yet this family was terrible and made my stay a complete purgatory the mother a very stupid scolding woman bowled and beat her children the whole day ten minutes did not pass without her dragging her children about by the hair or knocking and thumping them the children were not slow in returning it and besides that fought among themselves so that i had not a moment's quiet in my corner and was not infrequently in danger of coming in for my share for they amused themselves by spitting and throwing large blocks of wood at each other's heads the eldest son several times throttled his mother in such a way that she became black and blue in the face i always endeavoured indeed to establish peace but it was very seldom that i succeeded as i was unfortunately not sufficient master of the language to make them understand the impropriety of their conduct it was only in the evening when the father returned that there was any order or peace they dare not quarrel much less fight i never met with such conduct among any people even the poorest or lowest classes of the so-called heathens or unbelievers i never saw the children attempt to strike their parents when i left south bulak i wrote a letter for the missionary in which i directed his attention to the failings of this family and besought him to counteract them by teaching them that religion does not consist merely in prayers and fasts in bible reading and going to church my stay here was far less bearable than at Ravandus. i daily entreated the persian merchant to help me to go on further even if the journey should be attended with some danger he shook his head and explained to me that there was no caravan going and if i travelled alone i might expect either to be shot or beheaded i bore it for five days but it was impossible to do so any longer i begged the merchant to hire me a horse and a guide and made up my mind at least to go as far as oromia fifty miles in spite of all dangers or other circumstances i knew that i should find american missionaries there and that i should have no more anxiety about proceeding on further the merchant came on the following day accompanied by a wild-looking man whom he introduced to me as my guide i was obliged in consequence of the danger of travelling without a caravan to pay four times as much 
but I was willing to accede to anything to be able to get away. The bargain was made, and the guide pledged himself to start the next morning, and to bring me to Oromia in three days. I paid him half of the money in advance, and retained the other half until we came to our journey's end, so as to be able to find him in case he did not keep his agreements. I was partly glad and partly afraid when the contract was concluded, and to overcome my apprehensions I went into the bazaars and walked about outside the town. This town is situated in a small treeless valley near a range of hills. Although I did not wear anything but the isar, I was never annoyed out of doors. The bazaars are less beggarly than those at Ravandus. The Khan is large and comfortable. I found the appearance of the common people very repulsive tall and strongly built with marked features which were still more disfigured by an expression of wildness and ferocity they all appeared to me like robbers or murderers in the evening i put my pistols in proper order and made up my mind not to sell my life cheaply the twenty eighth of july instead of leaving south bulak at sunrise i did not start until towards midday i travelled on with my guide through desolate roads between treeless hills and trembled involuntarily when anyone met us. However, thank God, there were no adventures to go through. We had to fight indeed, but only with tremendous swarms of large grasshoppers, which flew up in some places in clouds. They were about three inches long, and were furnished with large wings of a red or blue color. All the plants and grass in the district were eaten away. I was told that the natives catch these grasshoppers and dry and eat them, unluckily i never saw any such dish after a ride of seven hours we came to a large fruitful and inhabited valley today's journey seemed to promise a favourable termination for we were now in an inhabited neighbourhood and frequently passed villages some peasants were still working here and there in the fields their appearance greatly amused me they wore the high black persian caps which were comically contrasted with their ragged dress we remained in this valley overnight at the village Mahomet Jur. If I had not been too idle, I might have had an excellent meal of turtle. I saw several of them on the road by the brooks, and even in the fields, and had only to pick them up. But then to hunt for wood, make a fire, and cook. No, I preferred eating a crust of bread and a cucumber in quiet. The 29th of July this morning we reached, in three hours, the village of Mahomet Shar. To my astonishment, my driver made preparations for stopping here. I urged him to continue the journey, but he explained to me that he could not go any further without a caravan, as the most dangerous part of the journey was now before us. At the same time he pointed to some dozens of horses in an adjoining stubble-field, and endeavoured to make me understand that in a few hours a caravan was going our way the whole day passed and the caravan did not appear i thought that my guide was deceiving me and was exceedingly irritated when in the evening he arranged my mantle on the ground for me to sleep it was now necessary that i should make a strenuous effort to show the fellow that i would not be treated like a child and remain here as long as he thought fit unfortunately i could not scold him in words but i picked up my mantle and threw it at his feet and explained to him that I would keep the remainder of the fare if he did not bring me to Oromia to-morrow on the third day. I then turned my back to him, one of the greatest slights, seated myself on the ground, and resting my head in my hands, gave myself up to the most melancholy reflections. 
what should i have done here if my guide had left me or had thought fit to remain until a caravan happened to pass by during my dispute with the guide some women had come up from the village they brought me some milk and some hot food seated themselves by me and inquired what i was so troubled about i endeavoured to explain the whole affair they understood me and took my part they were vexed with my guide and endeavoured to console me they did not stare from me and pressed me so heartily to partake of their food that i found myself compelled to eat some it consisted of bread eggs butter and water which were boiled up together notwithstanding my trouble i enjoyed it very much when i offered the good people a trifle for this meal they would not take it they seemed gratified that i was more at ease the thirtieth of july about one o'clock at night my guide began to stir himself saddled my horse and called me to mount still i was at a loss to understand his proceedings for i saw no signs of a caravan could he mean to take his revenge on me why did he travel at night through a country which he ought to have chosen daytime for i did not understand enough persian to be able to obtain an explanation and did not wish to say anything more to the fellow about not keeping his contract so i was obliged to go and i did go with great anxiety i mounted my horse and ordered my guide who was inclined to ride behind to go on in front i had no mind to be attacked from behind and kept my hand constantly on my pistols i listened to every sound watched every movement of my guide even the shadow of my own horse sometimes scared me however i did not turn back after a sharp ride of about half an hour we came up with a large caravan train which was guarded by half a dozen well-armed peasants it really appeared that the place was very dangerous and that my guide had been acquainted with the passing of a caravan nothing caused me more surprise on this occasion than the indolence of these people as they are accustomed to travel in the night during the hot season they also continue the custom at other times and pass through the most dangerous places although the danger would be much less during the day after some hours we came to the lake oromia which henceforth continued on our right side on the left lay barren hills ravines and mountains extending for some miles forming a most dreaded place morning brought us into another beautiful fruitful valley studded with villages the sight of which gave me courage to leave the caravan and hasten on the lake oromia from which the town takes its name is more than sixty miles long and in many places more than thirty wide it appears closely surrounded by lofty mountains although considerable levels intervene its water contains so much salt that neither fish nor mollusca can live in it it is a second dead sea it is said that a human body cannot sink in it large patches of the shore are covered with thick white saline incrustations so that the people have only to separate the salt they want from the ground although the lake and the country round it are very beautiful they do not present a very attractive prospect as the surface of the lake is not enlivened by any boats since i had left the sandy deserts round baghdad i had not seen any camels and thought that i should not see this animal again as i was travelling northwards to my astonishment we met several trains of camels and i learned afterwards that these animals were used as beasts of burden by the kurds as well as by the arabs this is a proof that they are able to bear a colder climate for in winter the snow drifts to a depth of several feet in the valleys the camels in these districts are somewhat more robust their feet are thicker their hair closer and longer their necks longer and not nearly so slender and their color darker 
I did not see any light-colored ones. The Kurds of the valley employ beasts of burden for carrying their crops, as well as wagons, which are, however, very simple and clumsy. The body is formed of several long, thin stems of trees bound together, the axles of shorter stems, with discs of thick board for wheels, of which each wagon has generally only two. Four oxen are yoked to these, each pair being led by a guide, who sits very oddly on the shaft between the yoke, with his back towards them. Later in the evening we reached Oromia safely, after a hard ride of more than sixteen hours. I had no letters to any of the missionaries, and with the exception of Mr. Wright they were all absent. They lived with their wives and children in the country. However, Mr. Wright received me with true Christian friendship, and after many disagreeable days I again found comfort. The first evening I laughed heartily when Mr. Wright told me in what manner the servant had informed him of my arrival. As I did not know enough of Persian to be able to tell the servant to announce me, I merely pointed to the stars. He understood this and went up to his master, saying that there was a woman below who could not speak any language. Afterwards I asked the servant for a glass of water, in English. He rushed upstairs as if he had been possessed, not as I thought to get what I wanted, but to tell his master that I spoke English. Mr. Wright acquainted the other missionaries of my presence, and they were so good as to come and visit me. They also invited me to spend a few days with them in the country, but I accepted their friendly invitation for one day only, as I had already lost so much time on the road. They all advised me not to go any further alone, although they admitted that the most dangerous part of the journey was past, and recommended me to take with me some armed peasants when passing the mountains near Kuchi. Mr. Wright was so good as to look out for a courageous and trusty guide. I paid double fare in order to reach Tebris in four instead of six days. In order to make the guide think that I was a poor pilgrim, I gave Mr. Wright the half of the agreed price and begged him to pay it instead of myself, and also to say that he would be paid the other half by Mr. Stevens, the English consul. I made as good use as possible of the day which I passed at Oromia in the morning i visited the town and afterwards i visited with mr wright several rich and poor families in order to observe their mode of life the town contains twenty-two thousand inhabitants is surrounded by walls but not closed by gates it is possible to pass in and out at any hour of the night it is built like all turkish towns with this exception that the streets are rather broad and kept clean Outside the town are numerous large fruit and vegetable gardens, which are surrounded by very high walls. Pretty dwelling-houses stand in the centre of the gardens. The women here go closely veiled. They cover over their heads and breasts with a white kerchief, in which thick impenetrable network is inserted, at the places opposite the eyes. In the houses of the poorer classes two or three families live under one roof they possess little more than straw mats blankets pillows and a few cooking utensils not to forget a large wooden box in which the meal their chief property is kept here as everywhere else where corn is cultivated bread is the principal food of the common people each family bake twice daily morning and evening many of the small houses have very pretty courts which are planted with flowers vines and shrubs and looked like gardens the dwellings of the wealthy are lofty, airy, and spacious. The reception rooms have a large number of windows and are covered with carpets. I saw no divans. People always lie upon the carpets. 
as we made the visits without being invited we found the women in very plain colored cotton dresses of course made in their own fashion in the afternoon i rode with the missionaries to their large country house which is situated about six miles from the town on some low hills the valley through which we rode was very large and altogether well cultivated and delightful although it is said to lie about four thousand feet above the level of the sea cotton castor oil plants vines tobacco and every kind of fruit grow here as in south germany the castor oil plant indeed is not more than four feet high and the cotton but one foot they produce however rather abundantly several villages are half hid in orchards i came into this country at a fortunate time there were beautiful peaches apricots apples grapes etc true fruits of my native country of which i had long been deprived the house of the missionary society is most charmingly situated it commands a view of the whole valley the town the low range of hills and the mountains the house itself is large and furnished with every possible convenience so that i thought i was in a country house of wealthy private people and not under the roof of simple disciples of christ there were four women here and a whole troop of children great and small i passed several very pleasant hours among them and was heartily sorry that i was obliged to take leave of them at nine in the evening several native girls were also introduced to me who were educated as the wives of the missionaries they spoke and wrote a little English, and were well acquainted with geography. I cannot avoid on this occasion making some observations with regard to the missionaries, whose mode of life and labors I had frequent opportunities of observing during my journey. I met with missionaries in Persia, China, and India, and everywhere found them living in a very different manner to what I had imagined. In my opinion, the missionaries were almost, if not complete, martyrs, and I thought that they were so absorbed with zeal and the desire to convert the heathen, that, like the disciples of Christ, quite forgetting their comforts and necessaries, they dwelt with them under one roof, and ate from one dish, etc. Alas! These were pictures and representations which I had gathered out of books. In reality, the case was very different they lead the same kind of life as the wealthy which are fitted up with luxurious furniture and every convenience they recline upon easy divans while their wives preside at the tea-table and the children attack the cakes and sweetmeats heartily indeed their position is pleasanter and freer from care than that of most people their occupation is not very laborious and their income is certain whatever may be the national or political condition of their country in places where several missionaries reside meetings are held three or four times a week these meetings or assemblies are supposed to be for the transaction of business but are not much other than soirees at which the ladies and children make their appearance in elegant full dress one missionary receives his friends at breakfast a second at dinner the third at tea several equipages and a number of servants stand in the courtyard business is also attended to the gentlemen generally retire for half an hour or so but the greater part of the time is passed in mere social amusement i do not think that it can be easy to gain the confidence of the natives in this way their foreign dress and elegant mode of life make the people feel too strongly the difference of rank and inspire them with fear and reserve rather than confidence and love they do not so readily venture to look up to people of wealth and rank and the missionaries have consequently to exert themselves for some time until the timidity is overcome the missionaries say that it is necessary to make this appearance in order to create an impression and command respect 
but i think that respect may be inspired by noble conduct and that virtue will attract men more than external splendor many of the missionaries believe that they might effect a great deal by preaching and issuing religious tracts in the native language in the towns and villages they give the most attractive report of the multitude of people who crowd to hear their preaching and receive their tracts and it might reasonably be thought that according to their representations at least half of their hearers would become converts to christianity but unfortunately the listening and receiving tracts is as good as no proof at all would not chinese indian or persian priests have just as great troops of hearers if they appeared in their respective national costume in england or france and preached in the language of these countries would not people flock round them would they not receive the tracts given out gratis even if they could not read them i have made the minutest inquiries in all places respecting the results of missions and have always heard that a baptism is one of the greatest rarities the few christians in india who here and there form villages of twenty or thirty families have resulted principally from orphan children who had been adopted and brought up by the missionaries but even these require to be supplied with work and comfortably attended to in order to prevent them from falling back into their superstition preaching and tracts are insufficient to make religious doctrine understandable or to shake the superstitions which have been imbibed in infancy missionaries must live among the people as fathers or friends labor with them in short share their trials and pleasures and draw them towards them by an exemplary and unpretending mode of life and gradually instruct them in a way which they are capable of understanding they ought not to be married to europeans for the following reasons european girls who are educated for missionaries frequently make this their choice only that they be provided for as soon as possible if a young european wife has any children if she is weak or delicate they are unable to attend any longer to their calling and require a change of air or even a journey to europe the children also are weak and must be taken there at latest in their seventh year their father accompanies them and makes use of this pretext to return to europe for some time if it is not possible to undertake this journey they go to some mountainous country where it is cooler or he takes his wife and family to visit a mela note mela is the name of the indian religious festivals at which thousands of people assemble End of note. the missionaries frequently travel hundreds of miles to them in order to preach to the people at the same time it must be remembered that these journeys are not made in a very simple manner as mine has been for instance the missionary surrounds himself with numerous conveniences he has palanquins carried by men pack-horses or camels with tents beds culinary and table utensils servants and maids in sufficient number and who pays for all this frequently poor credulous souls in europe and north america who often deny themselves the necessaries of life that their little savings may be squandered in this way in distant parts of the world if the missionaries were married to natives the greater part of these expenses and requirements would be unnecessary there would be few sick wives the children would be strong and healthy and would not require to be taken to europe schools might be established here and there for their education although not in such a luxurious manner as those in calcutta 
i hope that my views may not be misunderstood i have great respect for missionaries and all whom i have known were honourable men and good fathers i am also convinced that there are many learned men among them who make valuable contributions to history and philosophy but whether they thus fulfil their proper object is another question i should consider that a missionary has other duties than those of a philosopher for my own part i can only express my obligations to the missionaries everywhere they showed me the greatest kindness and affection their mode of life certainly struck me because i involuntarily associate with the name missionary those men who at first went out into the world without support to diffuse the doctrines of christ taking nothing with them but a pilgrim's stuff before concluding my description of oromia i must remark that this neighbourhood is considered to be the birthplace of zoroaster who is said to have lived five thousand five hundred years before the birth of christ and was the founder of the sect of magi or fire worshippers on the first of august i rode ten hours to the village of kuchi which lies near the lake oromia we seldom caught sight of the lake although we were always very near to it all day we passed through large fertile villages which would have presented a charming prospect if they had not been situated between barren and naked hills and mountains i had not enjoyed so pleasant a day during the whole journey from mosul or from baghdad my guide was a remarkably good fellow very attentive to me and provided everything carefully when we reached kuchi he took me to a very cleanly peasant's cottage among some excellent people they immediately laid down a nice carpet for me on a small terrace brought me a basin of water to wash and a quantity of large black mulberries on a lacquered plate afterwards i had some strong soup with meat fat sour milk and good bread all in clean vessels but what was better than all the people retired as soon as they set the food before me and did not stare at me as if i was a strange animal when i offered to pay these good people they would not take anything i had no opportunity of rewarding them until the following morning when i took two men of the family as guards across the mountains and gave them twice as much as they are generally paid they thanked me with touching cordiality and wished me safety and good fortune on my journey the second of august it occupied three hours to pass the most dangerous part of these desolate mountains my two armed men would not indeed have afforded me much protection against a band of robbers although they were the means of making the journey less terrible than it would have been if i had gone with my old guide alone we met several large caravans but all going towards oromia when we had crossed the mountains the two men left us we entered into enormous valleys which seemed to have been forgotten by nature and deserted by men in my opinion we were not in any degree out of danger and i was right for as we were passing three ruined cottages in this barren valley several fellows rushed up upon us laid hold of our horses reins and commenced rummaging my luggage i expected nothing but an order to dismount and already saw my little property lost they talked with my guide who told them the tale i had imposed upon him that i was a poor pilgrim and that the english consul or missionaries paid all my travelling expenses my dress the smallness of my baggage and being alone agreed perfectly with this they believed him and my silent supplicative look and let me go they even asked me if i would have some water of which there was a scarcity in these villages i begged them for a draught and so we parted good friends 
Nevertheless, I was for some time fearful that they might repent their generosity and follow us. We came to the shores of the lake again today, and continued to travel for some time at its side. After a ride of fourteen hours, we rested at a khan in the village of Sheikh Valley. The 3rd of August. The oppressive sense of fear was now at an end. We passed through peaceful inhabited valleys, where the people were working in the fields, carrying home corn, tending cattle, etc. During the hot noon hours we rested at Dize Halil, a rather considerable town, with very clean streets. The principal street is intersected by a clear brook, and the courtyards of the houses resemble gardens. Here also I saw outside the town a great number of very large gardens surrounded by high walls. From a number of cans this town would appear to be very much visited. In the small street through which we passed I counted more than half a dozen. We dismounted at one of them, and I was quite astonished at the conveniences which I found there. The stalls were covered, the sleeping places for the drivers were on pretty walled terraces, and the rooms for travellers, although destitute of all furniture, were very clean and furnished with stoves. The cans were open to everyone, and there is nothing to pay for using them. At the utmost a small trifle is given to the overseer, who provides the travellers' meals. In this respect the Persians, Turks, and the so-called uncultivated people are much more generous than we are. In India, for example, when the English build bungalows, travellers must pay a rupee per night, or even for an hour, which does not include any provision for the driver or the animals. They are obliged to take their rest in the open air. The travellers who are not Christians are not allowed to come into most of those bungalows at all. In a few they are admitted, but only when the rooms are not required by a Christian. If, however, one should arrive at night, the poor unbeliever is obliged to turn out for him without pity. This humane custom extends also to the open bungalows, which consist only of a roof and three wooden walls. In the countries of the unbelievers, however, those who come first have the place, whether they are Christians, Turks, or Arabs. Indeed, I am firmly convinced that if all the places were occupied by unbelievers, and a Christian was to come, they would make room for him. In the afternoon we went as far as Ali Shah, a considerable place with a handsome can. We here met with three travellers, who were also going to Tabriz. My guide agreed to travel with them, and that we should start at night. Their society was not very agreeable to me, for they were well armed, and looked very savage. I should have preferred waiting until daybreak, and going without them, but my guide assured me that they were honest people, and, trusting more to my good fortune than his word, I mounted my horse about one o'clock at night. I soon lost my fear, for we frequently met small parties of three or four persons, who would scarcely have ventured to travel at night, if the road had been dangerous. Large caravans also, of several hundred camels, passed us and took up the road in such a way that we were obliged to wait for half an hour to allow them to pass. Towards noon we entered a valley, in which lay a town, which was certainly large, but of such an unpretending appearance that I did not at once inquire what was its name. The nearer we approached, the more ruined it appeared. The walls were half fallen, the streets and squares full of heaps of rubbish, and many of the houses were in ruins. It seemed as if a pestilence or an enemy had destroyed it. At last I asked its name, and could hardly believe that I had understood it rightly when I was told that it was Tabriz. My guide conducted me to the house of Mr. Stevens, the English consul, 
who to my vexation was not in the town but ten miles away in the country a servant however told me that he would go directly to a gentleman who could speak english in a very short time he came and his first questions were how did you come here alone have you been robbed have you parted from your company and only left them in the town but when i gave him my pass and explained everything to him he appeared scarcely to believe me he thought it bordered upon the fabulous that a woman should have succeeded without any knowledge of the language in penetrating through such countries and such people i also could not be too thankful for the evident protection which providence had afforded me i felt myself as happy and lively as if i had taken a new lease of my life dr castellani showed me to some rooms in mr stevens house and said that he would immediately send a messenger to him and i might meanwhile make known my wants to him when i expressed to him my astonishment at the miserable appearance and ugly entrance to this town the second in the country he told me that the town could not be well seen from the side at which i came in and that the part which i saw was not considered the town but was chiefly old and for most part deserted End of section thirty six